To whatever degree that you see God's commands as burdensome, it is to that degree that you don't know your king. to Timothy and he says to Timothy, I'm writing this to you because you need to know how people ought to behave in the church of God, the church of the living God, the household of God. You need to know how to instruct the believers in the church that you pastor as elder. You need to know how we should behave in the household of God, which is, he says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's a staggering description of the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Jesus says to us, I am the truth. So the truth is not a concept. The truth is not an idea. The truth is not just a set of factually accurate statements. The truth of which Paul speaks is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth. And the church is called the pillar and the buttress of the truth. A pillar, we all know a pillar, is something that holds up a great weight. A buttress is something that keeps a great weight straight. Think of the flying buttresses of the great cathedrals of of Europe, as they would have these walls that would grow taller and taller as the cathedrals got bigger and bigger. They needed something of great mass and strength to keep the wall upright, from toppling over, and that's a buttress. And so a pillar holds up a weight, and a buttress keeps a weight straight. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. If the church were to disappear from the earth, the truth would have no pillar or buttress here on earth, because we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are the pillar and the buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. That is staggering. Paul writes to the Ephesians of the eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose which God purposed before the foundation of the world. He said, this is the eternal purpose of God, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We won't take the time to cipher through what rulers and authorities in heavenly places might have been what's on Paul's mind. That'll be in store for us in our later study through the book of the Ephesians. But for now, this statement that the eternal purpose of God that has been, as Paul says, realized in the Lord Jesus Christ, that eternal purpose is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Now, manifold means many, various, multiple. So we think of the wisdom of God and the infinite, unsearchable, unfathomable wisdom of God that Paul adds even another modifier to this to say the very, the many, the great wisdom of God is made known by the church. What a staggering statement that Paul makes about the church. Overwhelming 
is the subject that we face when we talk about the church of the living God here on earth. And we have no shortage of biblical material to guide us through our thoughts through the church because we could literally, without exaggeration, we can literally say that virtually all of our New Testament is directly about the church. It is either a letter written to the church, a letter written to the leader of a church about his leadership of the church, a uh, or a an account of the birth of the church. So all of that would take would take account of 23 of our 27 New Testament books. If we were to remove the church from the New Testament, if we could somehow cut the church out of the New Testament, we would have maybe arguably the Gospels, which we could easily say, well, they're about the church too, but not so directly as are the epistles. But we would have maybe the four Gospels and perhaps Paul's letter to Philemon. Even that is arguably has to do with the church. So we would be left with a whopping five books if we took the New Testament out of the church. God has chosen to reveal himself to us in such a way that is so saturated with the church that if we could remove the church from our New Testaments, the God that would be left would not be recognizable. That is how much he has clothed himself in the New Te- in the church of the New Testament. So our challenge is again to sort of wade through this material. We will do this as best we can in a way that is in no way exhaustive, but I hope in a way that is at least representative of the things that are most important for us to hear. There's there are certainly things that should be said that we won't have time to say. But we'll begin as we set the book of Ephesians aside right now. I want to begin just by making a connection between what the Lord has been showing us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians to what he's about to show us in our discussion of the church. And that is this. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking in Ephesians about this principle. And it is the principle that the Holy Spirit of God takes upon himself as his central task our holiness, our Christ-likeness, our our transformation into the image of Christ. And his means of doing that is his word. Specifically, he illumines his word in our hearts. He opens his word to us. And by so doing, he causes us to perceive more clearly and more accurately the blessings and privileges that are ours in Christ. And by perceiving with a clearer vision, with the more vivid grasp upon our blessings and privileges in Christ, we therefore love Him more, trust Him more, obey Him more fully. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. And that's the principle of the New Testament in terms of the growth of the Christian. This is what the Holy Spirit does, and this is how He does it. So now the connection for us to make is this, that God does this in a very similar way, if not the same way, in the context of the church. In the context of the church, the Holy Spirit uses His Word to illumine our thoughts, our perceptions, our understandings of our privileges and duties in the church. And by so doing, He causes our hearts to love, appreciate, and be devoted to the church more fully and more completely. So you see the similarity, you see the parallel between how the Spirit works in the heart of the individual Christian to make us Christ-like 
and how the Spirit works in the context of the church to raise the church in the view of the people, to cause the church to be precious to the people and important to the people and a thing of great devotion to the people. He does this in a way that is parallel to how he grows the individual Christian. So take a look at me, with me, not at me, with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church, which, by the way, as we all know, is the most carnal church in the New Testament. The Corinthian church was completely enamored with sin. They were suing once in one another in courts. They were tolerating among them a sexual deviant as a member who was having this affair with his stepmother. They were uh, tolerating among themselves false teachers. There was divisions among them. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, and on and on we could go. It is far and away the most carnal, worldly, unhealthy church in all of the New Testament. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. So you see Paul's tactic, so to speak, is to call the Corinthians to have a mind towards their identity, not so much their individual identity in Christ, but to have a mind towards their identity in the church. Do you not know that you're the temple of God? How can the temple of God sue one another? How can the temple of God tolerate false teaching? How can the temple of God abuse the supper, etc., etc.? Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You see His call to have the Spirit do a work of illumination in their heart that they might see the reality, the, the vivid reality of who they are, not in this sense individually in Christ, but who they are as a church and by so doing to cause them to change behavior, to cause them to obey more fully, to cause them to do the hard tasks of obedience. You see how he calls to their privileges and duties in Christ. We'll be talking about that as we go. Look at what he says to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. By the way, that's where the whole term of membership comes from, from that verse of Scripture. We talk about members of clubs and members of all different kinds of organizations. That's where it came from. This idea of members of a body in the context of the church. So Paul says, how can you lie to one another seeing that you are members of each other? In other words, why would my eye lie to my brain? That's nonsensical. For my eye to lie to my brain about what it's really seeing. Or why would my foot lie to my leg? That, that's utterly nonsensical for a body to lie to itself. And so Paul calls them to see with a greater perception, a, a, a clearer understanding of their privileges and duties in the church and to the church, and by so doing, he would then call them into 
a different behavior. Call them into the sense of, of thinking about lying to one another as something that would be completely incongruous to their identity as the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ that we have to look at here. This view of the Lord and the view of the church are in a sense one and the same. It is literally, it is impossible for us to sustain a high view of God while holding a low view of his church. It's impossible. So you can take that and plug that into the filter that you use to to listen to the world around you. And when you hear things like, I love Jesus and Jesus is my Savior and I just love the Bible and all this, but I, I, I really don't have time for the church. I don't like the church. I've had bad experiences, so I'm done with the church, but I love Jesus. You can plug this into that filter and say that's hogwash. Because it is impossible to sustain a high view of God while holding a low view of His church. God so envelops the revelation of Himself in His church that literally if we were to again take the church out of the New Testament, the God that would be left wouldn't be recognizable to us. Because God has chosen to cover Himself in His church, His revelation of Himself is completely covered in this teaching of the church. And so Paul calls them to that. If you belong to God, then your view of the church must align with your view of God. And so therefore, how could a member of the body lie to each other? This is the nature of the church that we have before us. So let's talk for just a little bit, because I've mentioned a couple of times this phrase, privileges and duties. It is the Spirit's work to use His Word to illumine our hearts to our privileges and duties to the church, and by so doing, cause us to have greater love for, devotion to the church. So let's talk for a minute about privileges and duties, because those two words are two words that we rarely in our day hear put together, because in our culture they have become something like oil and water. Privileges and duties are something that are seen as fighting with one another. The opposites, they are polar opposites. A privilege is something that's good, that's fun, it's something that I'm granted, it's something that I earn, it's something that I've got coming to me, and it's something positive, it's something I enjoy doing, and so I want to claim my privileges. Duties, on the other hand, are something very negative. That's a job, that's a responsibility, that's an obligation. I have duties that I have to do, but I certainly don't want to do them I will do what I have to do, but the privileges are what I really enjoy. And so our culture has grown up around this understanding that the two of those things are completely separate from one another. However, the scriptures take a different view entirely about privileges and duties. The scriptures see the privileges and the duties of the Christian as, and get this, one in the same. The scriptures see no duty that is not a privilege and no privilege that's not a duty. And so whatever privilege that we have as members of God's body is also a duty. Whatever duty we have as God's, as part of God's body is also a privilege. It is a blessing. In Christ, all of our privileges are also duties. All of our duties are also privileges. So let me illustrate this for us. We remember the story of King David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, that's a... That name is way too hard to say as many times as I need to say it. So Meph for short. Remember the story of King David and Meph. So David, remember that whole thing with him and Saul? He was 
He loved Saul. He was devoted to Saul. Yet Saul hated him, wanted to kill him. He ran from Saul for all these years. Saul and all of his family was finally killed in battle. And then the, the kingdom is finally given over step by step to David. And then David has full authority in the kingdom. All the kingdom is his. And then there comes that time in 2 Samuel 9 where David says to himself, I wonder if there's anybody left of the house of Saul that I can be good to, that I can show grace to, that I can show kindness to. And so he asks around the kingdom, is anybody left in the kingdom that's of the house of Saul? And he finds out that Jonathan had this son named Meph, Mephibosheth, for long. So Meph, remember his story, he was a little child and there was this battle and his nurse took him and was running and somehow she tripped and, and the fall crippled him for life. I don't know if he broke his legs or broke his feet or in some way he was crippled for life. And he escaped with his life, but then he was the last remaining person of the house of Saul. Then David hears about him and he says, bring him here so I can show kindness to him. And so he brings good old Meph in and Meph comes here. We see that he comes into David's presence. and He says, behold, I am your servant. I'm here to serve you. You are the king. I have no claim to the throne. You are the king. And then David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So David gives this command to Mephibosheth. And he says, You're going to eat at my table every meal. And so Meph had this duty to be at the king's table. And to eat his meals at the king's table. Do you think that he regarded that as drudgery? Do you think when dinner time came around, Mephibosheth was like, I gotta go eat the king's table again. I just did it at lunch and they have all this food and meats and fruits and cakes and sweets. And I, I gotta go eat again and wine and all this stuff. Oh, I get so tired of this. Do you think that he had that attitude at all? No. It was his great privilege to eat at the table of the king, yet in so doing, he was obeying the command of the king. That is how God wants his people to see, to regard our privileges and duties. You mean we get to fill in the blank for the king? To whatever degree that you see God's commands as burdensome, it is to that degree that you don't know your king. To whatever degree you you think of God's commands and think, oh, I just wish God wouldn't require that of me. It is to that degree that you don't understand your king. Because your king is like David, only infinitely greater, one who desires to do good to his to his subjects, and one who desires to pour on grace to his subjects, and in so doing, he commands them to receive of his blessings. That is how we are to regard every command of the Lord. When he commands us to be faithful to our spouse, it is a command that is a blessing. When he commands us to forgive those who have wronged us, it is a command that is a blessing. And to whatever degree that we don't see that is the same degree to which we need to learn the character of our king. Remember the story in 
in Luke chapter 12, the, the parable that Jesus tells about the, the servants, the three servants, the two good servants and the one wicked servant. And money is given, talents are given to each servant and the first two go and they do something productive. And then the third has the one talent and he goes and buries it in the ground. And then Jesus tells the story about the master coming home and finding out and he's, he's really angry and he calls the wicked servant in front of him and he says, why did you do this? And the servant says to him, because I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be one who reaps where he doesn't sow. I knew you to be one who's unmerciful to one who would lose your money. And so therefore, I buried it for you. Here it is. The whole point is that he didn't know his master. He thought his master to be hard and cruel and selfish and greedy. When in reality, his master had showed himself to the other two servants to be just the opposite. The whole problem with that servant was he didn't know his king. And when we regard the commands, the the duties that God gives to His body as burdensome, it also shows that we don't know our King. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, John says, His commands are not burdensome. If we walk in the light, we see and we know that His commands are not burdensome. So that is the framework that God desires His people to see His commands, His duties. They are duties unto blessings. They are duties unto privileges. And so God wants to enlighten, to enlarge our understanding of our duties and our privileges within the church of Christ in order to bless us. 